In your Bible today, the book of Acts, chapter number 2, Acts chapter 2, and the subject is Acts chapter 2 people living in an Acts 17 world. Acts chapter 2 people living in an Acts 17 world. Acts chapter 2, we'll begin there today. I was born in West Virginia, southeastern West Virginia, on a little 10-acre farm. My dad was a bivocational preacher, and he had a little farm, but he also pastored three country churches simultaneously, believe it or not. And that's the world I grew up in, a very simple We were probably poor by today's standards, but we didn't think so. We never talked about that. We didn't have as much of the world's goods as we have today, I promise you, but we were happy and we lived there in a very Christ-like environment in that home. That was in the late 1940s and 1950s. I didn't realize it. I was living at the peak of American greatness and American exceptionalism. I was living in post-World War II times, although we didn't call it post-World War II times. (laughs) We weren't that sophisticated yet. But life was good, and my brother and I spent most of the summer in the Greenbrier River, and uh, just a kind of a Tom Sawyer type of background, I guess, as a kid. I got married in time, of course, and came here, started the church. And my children came along. My firstborn son, Tory, was born in 1970. But already it had begun a massive cultural change that continued from the 60s Sociologists today would say it began with uh, Woodstock. The drug culture came in. The rock culture came in. And uh, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, massive, massive social change. Change like maybe no country ever has experienced in that brief period of time, uh, a 30-year window or something like that. And then, through process of time, my grandchildren were born. And uh, all eight of them are here today. Well, no, seven of them are here today. One of them is in college. And they're living in a completely different culture than the one their mother and dad lived in. It's changed again. And instead of living in, I lived in a Judeo-Christian culture. I was born and brought up as a child in an Acts 2 culture. My children were brought up in a transition time when massive change was happening in the world. We didn't know, by the way, how massive it was. When we look back and see pictures of Woodstock today, or we look back and hear about the events of the 70s and 80s and, and 90s, for example. We don't think, at the time, we were just living life. We were just raising kids and working and doing the things people do. We didn't realize the forces that had been unleashed upon the world. And then, now my grandchildren are living 
in an altogether different culture than even their parents experienced, much less the culture I grew up in as a child. So I was born in an Acts 2 culture. My grandchildren are, or my children live through a transitional culture. My grandchildren are living in a postmodern, post Christian, even anti Christian, secular culture, unlike anything I could have ever dreamed about when I was a little boy swimming every day with my brother Paul in the, New, in the, in the Greenbrier River. And in my lifetime, I've seen America, the greatest nation ever to grace the, this planet. I've seen that nation go from Acts 2 to Acts 17, from a Judeo-Christian culture with the blessing of God evidently and obviously upon it, to a culture today that is anti-Christian at its core. Now, in your Bible, you have it open, I think, to Acts chapter 2. The people of Acts chapter 2 had a biblical worldview. The people of Acts 2 had a biblical worldview. And we talk about a biblical worldview a lot here. We talk about it every day in Christian school. And what I mean by that, the people in Acts chapter 2, they were literally steeped in Old Testament doctrine and teaching. Every one of the people who were gathered here at Pentecost to hear Peter preached that day, could have quoted the Ten Commandments. By the way, the average American can't even give five today of the ten. I just read that in a recent survey. But the people in Acts chapter 2 could have quoted the Ten Commandments in order, and they could have told you all of the Old Testament Bible uh, episodes and events there, as well as all the teaching and theology that it provoked. They were familiar with the sacrificial system. Every year from the time they were of age to even understand what was happening in their world, they would have observed the Passover. A 12-year-old child would have been through the Passover 12 times. A 12-year-old child would have observed Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, 12 times. So those people understood well the teaching of the Bible and it shaped their worldview. A worldview is the way we interpret life. And every one of those people standing there that day listening to Peter preach would have thought biblically. They would have thought with a worldview in mind, scripturally based. Now, in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up there to preach on that day. And I read from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. And he said unto them, You men of Judea, and you that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Listen to me, is what he was saying there. For these people are not drunken that are standing here with me, the Christians. They're not drunk, as you suppose. It's just nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that. You may want to underline those three words in your Bible. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And then he goes on and he quotes from Joel and he expresses, he tells them a lot of Old Testament history here for a few verses. I won't read them all for the sake of time. The setting here is it's only six weeks after Jesus Christ had died on the cross. Listen, I want you to get this. Several thousand people had witnessed the death of Christ. Josephus tells us at least three to 4,000 people were at the scene of the, of the cross. Crucifixions drew big crowds in those days. And then when Christ arose, the Bible says over 500 people saw him at one time. In fact, if you go down to verse 32 here of Acts chapter 2, this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Hundreds of people, hundreds of people were there that day that were witnesses of the risen Christ. Hundreds of people. And so what we have, thousands and thousands saw him die on the cross. Hundreds are there today gathered who have witnessed his resurrection after, uh, uh, after three days. And now Peter begins to talk to them, and I want you to notice what he does. Notice how he's preaching here. He quotes the book of Joel from the Old Testament. And he, he quotes there, he says, God has promised he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters would prophesy, and your young men would see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And he basically said, the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled before your eyes today. And then you go down a little further, and he begins to talk about King David in verse 25. And so everybody there knew who Joel was. How many people do you think today, if I preached to a general audience, a public audience in America, would know who the prophet Joel is? How many people today in America do you even think who would know who King David was and know anything about him if I were speaking to an audience, a general population of people in our country today? I think you would say that not many would have known. But here, everybody knew because they were steeped in the Scriptures at a biblical worldview. He refers to God numerous times. You can look at verse after verse, and he invokes the name of God. What God is he talking about? He's talking about Jehovah God, Elohim, the God of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 that created the heaven and the earth. People weren't standing there thinking, now which God is he talking about? Is that the Hindu God? Is that Vishnu? Or is that Buddha? Or uh, who, What God? Is that Allah? That never entered anybody's mind there that day because they had a biblical worldview. They all understood the Old Testament, you see. And then in verse 22, he turns his attention to Jesus. You men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a town right up here in the north of the country, a man approved of God among you by the miracles and wonders and signs that he did. As you yourselves know, because you witnessed those signs and wonders, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this Jesus is connected to the plans of God for all of eternity. You have taken him. By wicked hands, you have crucified him. He makes a, an allegation, an accusation. You folks have killed the Son of God. You are wicked. He says you are wicked. 
He wouldn't say that in postmodern world today, would he? I mean, that's a, that's a judgment. <laughs> he was getting pretty judgmental here, as the world of today would see it, by wicked hands, which assumes there's a, if there's a wicked, there must be a good. And so there's wicked hands, and you have crucified him and slain him. But in spite of that, God raised him up, verse 24, and he loosed him from the pains of death because it was not possible that he could be held by death. And then he goes back and he quotes David again. His focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes to verse 32, and he says, and God raised him up. He not only preached the death of Jesus Christ, he preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Christ is a living Savior. And he said, You're, hundreds of you are witnesses of that. And then down in verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, Lord and Christ. And he goes back to the gospel. He goes back to the cross to the atonement for the sins of mankind. And what was their response? Look in verse 37. How did the people standing there, there was a massive crowd of people that day respond to this message? When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said, what shall we do? They weren't hostile in that sense. You say, well, somebody was hostile. They killed Jesus six weeks before. Who killed Jesus? It was the leaders. It was the religious establishment and the political establishment that killed Jesus. It was the Romans, and it was the priest and the high priest. It wasn't the common people. The common people had heard him gladly throughout all of his ministry. And so Peter preaches the gospel to them, a simple gospel message about Jesus and they respond. They said, what do you want us to do? And in verse 38, he tells them what to do. He says, repent and be baptized. He didn't, by the way, have to explain baptism because Jews understood baptism because they knew about the, the ministry of John the Baptist, who had come baptizing in the Jordan River. They had heard that Jesus perhaps had been baptized by him. And so, what do you want us to do? And he said, I want you to repent. I want you to change your mind about your sin. I want you to change your mind about who Jesus is. I want you to change your mind about yourself. Stop seeing yourself as this self-righteous being who doesn't need anything. See yourself as a helpless, hapless sinner who can't do one thing to save yourselves and come and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins. And they responded. Oh, did they respond? Look in verse 40. With many other words did he testify and exhort them, a long-winded preacher. And he said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received the word, those that heard the word of God and said, this is great, this is wonderful, we receive this, they were baptized that day. Gladly receiving the word is the Another way to say they were saved. And then they were baptized. And the same day there was added unto the church 3,000 souls. That little church 
that it had 120 names on its roll back in chapter 1, now has 3,000-plus editions in one day. I mean, that's revival, isn't it? I mean, God was working there. And then they continued steadfastly, learning the apostles' doctrine, verse 42, and fellowshipping together and breaking bread and in prayers. And it goes on and describes their church life. And in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. They were accepted by the people of the culture. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Acts chapter 2, a culture with a biblical worldview, a culture that was open to the claims of Jesus Christ and accepted Him as their Savior. Now, prior to the 1960s, much of America was like that. Much of America prior to 1960 had a Acts 2 worldview. The people in this country and the generations before us, my grandparents and great-grandparents, people going back to the founding of the country, they went to a one-room school, largely. Do you know what the school, how they taught them to read? They taught them to read from a McGuffey's reader. I have some McGuffey's reader in my, readers in my library. Half of the book is Bible stories, or it's little moral maxims like the golden rule and things like that that the children were taught, moral living, how to be courteous, to, to respect your elders, to respect other people's property. It was moral training. While they were learning to read, they were also learning a sense of morality. And uh, the other thing they learned to read from is the King James Bible. <laughs> it's too hard for college graduates to understand today, but they learned to read from the King James in the first grade. Interesting, isn't it? may say something about the size of brains of people today across the country. I mean, 12th graders can't handle what first graders learned 150 years ago? Come on, let's, let's be serious, huh? They learned to read from McGuffey's readers and from a King James Bible, basically. And America was a unique nation, and God shed His grace on America and how He shed His grace on America. And the nation was unique because it was not a Christian nation, but it was a nation founded on Christian principle. And great preachers, and if you were here Monday night, what a blessing to hear about Harry Hoosier, a black evangelist who had the most, the largest crowds of any preacher of his entire day who went across the frontier states, Ohio, Indiana, uh, Virginia, uh, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania, and through there as the country was opening up. And he preached to tens of thousands of people and was so revered that in the state of Indiana, they call it today the Hoosier State, named after a black Baptist preacher who was preaching during that period of time. And there was George 
Whitfield, and there was Jonathan Edwards, and there was Peter Cartwright, who used to go to the bars. He would go to the bars. He said, that's where the people are. And he would go to the bar, and he would have some fella get loud and drunk and so on with him. And Cartwright was a big six five guy, and he'd just roll up his sleeves and whip him. And then after he did that, everybody was listening to him. So he knew how to get their attention. And colorful, wonderful stories. God had his hand on the country. It was an axe to culture. The people had a moral compass. The people had a belief in moral absolutes that right is right and wrong is wrong. Everything was not sort of a murky gray. It was right and wrong. It was black and white. It was very clear because we still believed in the Ten Commandments. We viewed them as God's law, God's law for people to live by, not to be saved by, but to live by. They were viewed as absolute moral truth. They applied to everybody, saved and unsaved, good and bad. And God blessed the country. And then in the 1960s, I graduated from high school in the early 60s. I went to college through the 60s. I was at the University of South Carolina when Woodstock occurred. And so I was living in the middle of it, but I really didn't understand it. I didn't know how significant all this was. I didn't understand that the ground was moving under my very feet as I stood there as a student in college at that time. And this cultural shift started. First thing, couldn't pray in public school. Second thing, can't read the Bible in public school. David Barton said when he was a young man in Texas, they read the Bible entirely through every year in the Texas public schools. Can you imagine? That'd take 15, 20 minutes a day. And they read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation every year in every grade of public school. So you read the Bible 12 times by the time you graduated from school. Were you in Texas at that time? And then we had the rise of the drug culture. And we had the rise of the sexual revolution. And we had the rise of LGBTQ2 and all that stuff that goes with it. And abortion was legalized. And our colleges and our universities, instead of educating people, became agents of social change and indoctrination to a great degree. And if you young people go to secular college and you buy into the assumptions, you will end up with the same conclusions. If, you, if I can get you to buy my assumptions, then you will end up with my conclusions. And most destructive of all, we saw the destruction of the family unit. Half of the people ended up divorced because we were taught that divorce was really not such a bad thing. You have to be happy. The key to life is be happy. Be happy, be happy, be happy. If you're not happy, just get out. Try another one. And then our whole view of truth changed. It's no longer absolute. It's relative. You know, you have your truth. I have mine. And America moved from a biblical to a secular worldview, from a Christian to post-Christian. 
from absolute truth to relativism. And we became an Acts 17 culture. What's Acts 17? Well, flip over there with me, and I'll show you an Acts 17 culture. Paul went to Athens in Greece. It was the pinnacle of intellectualism, scientific inquiry, philosophy, and so on in those days. And he was preaching there. And uh, while he was there, some of the leaders, the philosophers, came to him. And so in verse 16 of Acts 17, while Paul waited for them, his evangelistic party at Athens, his speech, his spirit was stirred in him because he saw a city wholly given to idolatry, wholly given to idolatry. Certainly not a biblical worldview there, huh? You see, your view of God, who God is, is the biggest factor in your worldview. And an idol worshiper, as all these people were, had a completely different worldview from the people of Acts chapter 2. Idols were simply personifications or representations of a person's thought. A man thinks, this is what I think God is like, and he shapes a God out of wood or metal or whatever it may be, clay. He shapes the God that he pictures in his mind. And so, an idol is simply the tangible image of what a person thinks about, and man creates the idol. And most of those gods of the ancient world were personifications of the forces of nature. So we had a God for fertility. We had a God for storms. We had a God for the crops. We had a God. These gods could only do one thing. They couldn't. They weren't a God like our God. They were limited. They were finite. They didn't have complete knowledge. They didn't have complete power to do, to carry out what they wanted to do. They were non-personal. They were not beings with a mind and an intelligence and a will like we have. And in verse number 18, Paul is there, and he's disputing in the synagogue. He's talking with the Jewish people, and the philosophers come to him in verse 18. Certain philosophers, pagan philosophers, of the Epicureans and the Stoics, two different schools of philosophy, encounter him. And some of them said, what will this babbler say? But others said, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, which is a hill there, Mars Hill. And it was the gathering place of the philosophers and the intellectuals. They would sit and they would talk for hours on end. That's all some of them did. It would be like... uh, Starbucks today. <laughs> It'd be a place where people just go and they sit and they, they talk. And some of it's serious talk. Some of it's not so serious. A, a social gathering place, but it was a place specifically in Athens where all these great revered philosophers and scientists and men of letters would gather together and they would talk. And so Paul went there and they said, we want to hear from you about this new doctrine, whereof you speak. In verse 20, how you bring certain strange things to our ears. We, we would know what these things mean. Tell us what you believe. You, you have some new theory about the ultimate questions of life. 
And so in verse 22, Paul stood up in the midst of Mars Hill and he said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. Now the word superstitious here is also could be translated, the same word is translated superstitious and religious. So he said, I've been studying your religions, what you believe. And he said, I've observed here in verse 23, you have an altar and you have to the unknown God on that altar. In other words, you've got an altar for Zeus and you've got an altar for Hercules and you've got an altar for somebody else over here. All these different gods, you have an altar for each of them because you worship so many gods. But he said, I also noticed you had an altar to the unknown God that you believe there might be another God that you don't know about. And he said, I'm here today. Look at the last phrase of verse 23. Who you ignorantly worship, that you don't know who he is, I want to declare him unto you. And Paul then has to describe God. Peter back in Acts 2 didn't have to describe God to his audience. All the Jews knew who the God was that he was preaching about. But when you get to Acts 17, they have so many different opinions of God. You have to tell them the God you're going to talk about. And so he begins to describe it. And if you'll notice there, he says in verse 24, he said, first of all, he is the God that made the world. He is the creator God. He's the one true God. He is the one who created this whole thing. There's creation. He made all the things therein. And he doesn't dwell in temples like your idol gods do, made with men's hands. He is the Lord of the universe. Then in verse 25, he goes on and he says, and he gives, he gives life and breath and all things to us. He is self-existent. He doesn't need us. He, he is the one who gives us life and breath and all things. He is made of one blood, all the nations of the earth. There's just one race. He hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of our habitation. And then he continues in verse number 28. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, he sustains our life. He not only gives us life, he sustains that life. We wouldn't have life without him, not for a moment. And then he says something else. Don't think of the Godhead like something made out of gold and silver and stone or graven by art and man's devices in verse number 29. And then he says, we ought not to think of the Godhead. The Godhead, he's a trinity. He exists in three persons. They're the same essence, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says to them, we're made in his image. We're made in his image. And in verse 30, he commands repentance. And now he commandeth, he commandeth all men everywhere to repent, to change their mind and their direction and to come to him. He commands that. He doesn't just invite people. He commands repentance, Paul says. And then in verse 31, someday... He'll be your judge. And you can believe him or you can reject him, 
But either way, you will stand before him, and he will judge you. And look at their reaction in verse number 32. What was their reaction? 3,000 people didn't come and get saved and baptized that day. No. Three different responses. Some mocked. Verse 32. Some of them procrastinated. I'm kind of interested in this. I'll come back and hear you again one day. And in verse number 34, some of them believed. Acts 17, response to the gospel of Christ. Now, look up here. I've tried to show you, to be very, very biblical here and show you from the Scripture, the contrast between these two chapters. We're now living, not in the world I was born into, an Acts 2 world, we're living in Acts 17. We're living at a time when people can't even give you an articulate biblical answer as to whom God is Himself. And since the late 90s, early 2000s, we crossed that line. And we're now living in a post-Christian world. And as I said, that word God doesn't even mean the same thing to people. It meant to me growing up or to you as Bible-believing Christians living in this world today. And because of that, because we've left our foundations and our moorings, well, because of that, our basic freedoms are under attack because our freedoms came from God. God is the author of liberty. That's not just a song. That's the truth. When all men and women agree to a social compact, when we all agree that this is right and this is wrong and this is the direction we need to go, then you have progress. And today, that's all splintered because of it. We've got one party in the United States today that would change, that is right now actively working to change America into a totalitarian state. They want to tell you, you don't control your body anymore. Don't sit here numb-brained, ladies and gentlemen, going through life and not see what is happening. We live in consequential times. Don't go to sleep. War with Russia could be imminent. And are we concerned? Are we praying? Are we brokenhearted for our country and for what could happen to our families and our children? God has not changed, though. The God of Acts 2 is still on the throne. God has not changed. The Bible still has the answers. Christ is still our hope this morning. And Christianity, I've been studying it for 52 years seriously and before that some. And this is our only hope. This is, this is the only worldview that gives people the answers to the ultimate and real questions of life. This is the only religion, the only philosophy, the only belief that tells people where they came from, their origin. 
It's the only one that tells them where they're going to go when this life is over. It's the only one that explains where evil and suffering have come from. It's the only one that gives us any hope or even any basis for hope in our future today. I want to tell you, when I think about that, I so love Jesus Christ. I am so thankful that He came from heaven and went to the cross and died for my sins and gave me a hope that nothing can take care away from me today. And I really don't care what the Epicureans and the Stoics are saying in our culture. I want to shut my ears and close my eyes sometimes and say, I don't want to hear it. Because you know what? They don't know the truth. They're looking in the wrong places for truth. But we have the truth. Last week I challenged you about the Great Commission. But you say to me, well, what should we do? What do people, what do people need to do? And this ought to be another whole sermon. What? I, I'm not getting ready to preach another whole sermon, but you understand. But what are we to do? Well, Jude says we're to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It's what I'm doing right now. And number two, Matthew says we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel every single creature, like the missionaries are attempting to do in Sudan, and we've got to do right here in the PD. And number three, we've got to help our parents right now. We've got to help them raise godly children. And so we have the school, and we have the Sunday school, but we as a church, we have to band together. We've got to do everything we can to keep our children from being scarred from this culture. And number four, we've got to call the compromising, cold, lukewarm Christians back to the faith because America is full of them today. And we've got to be watchmen on the wall. That's what I'm trying to do right now. Turn quickly to the book of Ezekiel with me, and we'll read a verse. Chapter 33, and it's verse 7. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman under the house of Israel, and therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. And I could go on and read it, the rest of the chapter, about the need to warn the people, but I, I don't have the time to do it. So, here we are. We're Acts 2 people, and we're living in Acts 17 culture. And I challenge you, to read your Bible, to stay close to the Lord, to be faithful to the church, to witness to your lost loved ones and friends, to pray every day for one another and to pray for the country right now. And let's not give up hope and fall into a don't care attitude. There's nothing we can do. Oh, there's plenty we can do. We just don't realize what God can do through us if we're wholly surrendered to Him. Would you stand to your feet with me, please, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed?